Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. By way of review, and, uh, and I can review because you're not fooling anybody. We know that half of you are at the lake or the river every other Sunday, and so miss some of what's gone on in the series already. But the reason this is titled Brothers and Sisters is because this phrase is found numerous times throughout this very short New Testament book of James. Um, some of you may not have it in your versions because some translators just use the word brothers, but the Greek word here is adelphoi, which is the masculine plural form of brothers. The ancient Greeks didn't have a word for siblings as we do, and so this word adelphoi serves the same purpose as the Spanish word hermanos does. So if you see a restaurant called Los Tres Hermanos, chances are it really is three brothers who are together serving up uh, enchiladas mole and all sorts of other good stuff. But if I were to ask you, ¿cuántos hermanos tiene? You would know that I was asking about both your brothers and sisters, and you might respond, tengo dos hermanos y tres hermanas, okay? And as we go on this morning, I w I'll, I'll share a little more why I think that that's the translation that is correct here, that James was deliberately, intentionally talking to his sisters and brothers in Christ, not just his brothers. But this phrase appears three times in each of the first three chapters, uh, once in chapter four, and then four times in, in the concluding chapter, chapter five. Uh, I'm a real big picture guy, so I'm, not, I'm, I'm gonna spend a lot of time talking just about James and the context of, of this book and, and the passage before us, more so than the details of, of the passage itself. But before I take us up to a cruising altitude of 30,000 feet, I do wanna jump right into verse one because it, it has something to say that'll set up uh, the rest of my time. Before I do that though, let me just uh, commit our time to the Lord. Uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our collective hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our creator and redeemer. Amen. So verse 1 of chapter 3, and we'll be in chapter 3 the, the whole time if you can follow along in your Bibles or your Bible apps. Not many of you should become teachers, my sisters and brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, obviously, this is a case of do as I say, not as I do, because I'm up here uh, going against this teaching. I've, I've become a teacher. Uh, some translators prefer masters to teachers here uh, and see this as a warning against taking a position of authority over others or judging others. In other words, they see this passage as an echo of Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 1 through 2, uh, which says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you yourself will be judged. I do believe that the better meaning of didaskalos here is in fact teacher. And I hope we can all see that this isn't a warning against becoming a math teacher or a Spanish teacher or a kindergarten teacher. Rather, what James has in view here is those who would teach uh, the things of God, those who would expound God's word and relate and, and uh, interpret his revelation to us, 
uh, those who would declare the good news that through Christ's death and resurrection, God has changed the world, that he is instituting his kingdom here on earth. Obviously, those who in their teaching deny the existence of God or defame the name of Christ or blaspheme the Holy Spirit are in for a harsh judgment. But this passage is not written to unbelievers, it's written to brothers and sisters in Christ. So I think it is a warning to those of us who are teaching the things of God, the deep and, and central things of God, uh, and not so much to, to the unbelievers. And I think we need to take it seriously. Uh, so my main role in the church is that of an apologist. Uh, Christian apologetics is the reasoned formulation and winsome presentation of a rational defense of the Christian world and life view. And while there are several components to apologetics, one of the most basics is just clearly articulating what it is that Christians believe, what it is the Bible teaches, and especially in the context of where there is mischaracterization of Christianity. People need to be clarified or set straight on what it is Christians believe. So I'm, I'm really, one of the things I appreciate most about Antioch is that we do teach historical Christianity, true Christianity. Uh, you can see by the sermon series we've had in the last few years that that's the case, the Apostles' Creed, the Sermon on the Mount and such. So I just want to take an opportunity right now to point out a couple of teachings in the church that are not part of historical Christianity, are not really true of the world in which we live. Um, both of these examples uh, arose within my lifetime and are primarily found only in fundamentalist circles, okay? And I don't use the word fundamentalist in a, in a derogatory way there. There's a whole lot about fundamentalism that we believe and hang on to. It's commitment to the authority and inerrancy of scripture, to the divinity of Christ and all those sorts of things and I could go on and on and on. But on this issue, on these issues, uh, the church has in recent times gotten it wrong within fundamental circles. It's not shared by even most Protestants, let alone Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox. But so successful have these false teachings been within those fundamentalist circles that most of you raised in such circles will have been taught that this is what the Bible teaches and what Christians have always believed. And I'm talking about the twin ideas that the creation occurred about 6,000 years ago and that the flood account of Genesis 6 through 8 apply to an entire planet and somehow explain away all of the evidences from creation itself for a much older history and uh, a whole lot of other living things having been created prior to our time. So I'm not gonna hijack James 3 to talk about this. Uh, just a little teaser, I'm in conversation with Evan about actually offering some classes this fall that would be available to you all about science and, and the Bible. But for now, I just want to point out that this is a recent, these are recent teachings in the church. This is not what Christians have believe, believed throughout church history. Uh, you can find no ancient creed that talks about a young earth or a global flood or even doctrinal statements from any local church or denomination until about 100 years ago, okay? Um, the complex interpretive screen, scheme that yields a creation of about 6,000 years ago arose in the 17th century and, and is attributed to two English-speaking uh, theologians. 
But the idea that the flood was global in nature really only goes back to the late 1800s. And both of these ideas didn't become supposed orthodoxy even in fundamentalist circles until about 1960. Uh, what scripture actually teaches is that God created everything out of nothing. And that teaching has been powerfully supported by arguably the most significant scientific discovery of the last 100 years. And that is Big Bang cosmology. Now, Big Bang cosmology and the general relativity that undergird it are the most rigorous, rigorously tested and verified concepts in all of physics. And the reason for that is that the astronomers and physicists involved in these discoveries were very much opposed to finding that the universe had a beginning. And that for two reasons. One is that it sounds a whole lot like what the Christians and the Bible have claimed all along. And secondly, 13.6 billion years they understood is not nearly enough time for natural selection to do its wonders. So the discovery that our universe had a beginning is also a refutation of Darwin's naturalistic theory of evolution. I have a, a quote by Augustine here that kind of sums this situation we find ourselves in, in fundamentalist churches. Uh, now it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for, in, for an infidel to hear a Christian, presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense on these topics. And if we should take all and we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh it to scorn. If they find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well and hear him maintaining his foolish opinions about our books, how are they going to believe those books in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life and the kingdom of heaven when they think their pages are full of falsehoods on facts which they themselves have learnt from experience and the light of reason. So all I want to say on this is there's no evangelical fruit born by teaching a young earth or a global flood. Nobody comes to believe the claims of Christianity because they're taught that Christians believe that stuff, okay? Your job as those who are taught is, is kind of summed up in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 21, and that is, test all things, hold on to the good. But our job as teachers is to make sure that what we're teaching is really true historical Christianity and what the Bible says, not just uh, a modern uh, interpretation of it, okay? Now, there's another thing I want to call out, another false teaching that's even more pervasive than that. This one tra uh, transcends denominational lines, <coughs> but is also not true to Scripture. So, the narrative arc of all of Scripture, as we understand it here at Antioch, is of creation and redemption inextricably intertwined. That is, God created a very good world, but it was broken by mankind's sin. But even before the creation, the triune Godhead had a plan for redeeming the brokenness. And that plan was initiated at the incarnation, death, and resurrection of the second person of the Godhead uh, and will culminate when Christ returns to establish his kingdom here on earth for all time. And we will live in that new creation for eternity. In the meantime, we Christ followers are empowered by the Holy Spirit to work with him to 
affect the reconciliation of all things that is part of that plan. That includes not just other people, but other creatures, other nations, uh, and creation itself. Contrast that with the teaching that all Christ's death and resurrection accomplished was the saving of human souls for some disembodied existence elsewhere, heaven, and that God has no further plans for his very good creation. On this view, uh, all that matters is the saving of souls. Even the physical well-being of people throughout the world doesn't matter. Justice doesn't matter, much less other creatures or the creation itself. Okay? You see, there's, there's a false teaching here, either ours or, or that one. Um, the idea that Christians alive when Jesus returns would be taken away in a, in a sort of rapture traces only to the 19th century. Now, the fixation on heaven goes much further back to, to say, the Middle Ages, but owes more to Dante and others like that than it does to the reading of Scripture. Again, I don't have time this morning, although we talk about this week in and week out, to show you why the first view is, is what Scripture says. What I will say for now is that I challenge you to find even one single passage in Scripture that directly promises us that our destination is heaven, and you won't be able to do it. My point for now is simply that there, it's very easy to fall into teaching what is not true to Scripture and what is not true to the world in which we live. The great thing about being a Christian apologist is that Christianity is the uniquely accurate understanding of the world in which we all actually live. It only becomes kind of silly when we go beyond Scripture to teach other things. Now, besides being accountable to God for what we teach, those of us who are called to teach the things of God, I think there's another pitfall that James may have had in mind in this first verse. And that is that those of us who teach can fall into uh, a rut of stubbornness and dogmatism and become ourselves unteachable. Okay? So, some of you may have believed all your life that the flood in, in Genesis 6 through 8 was global in nature, but you held that belief somewhat privately. And if I had the time to show you all the interpretive and scriptural and scientific reasons why that's not the case, you're likely to change your mind about that. But if, on the other hand, you have not only held that belief, but you've taught it to dozens or hundreds or thousands of people it will likely take a supernatural level of humility for you to even consider that you may have been wrong about that. Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, my way of dealing with this stern warning in James 3.1 when it comes to teaching you is to try to double down on humility. Uh, I think you understand, if you've been here a while, that humility is a characteristic of the teaching at Antioch. Uh, the most frequent statement I heard in the sermons of our founding pastor, Ken Weitzman, was the phrase, does that make sense? In other words, he was conversing with us, not proclaiming uh, dogmatically. And, then, and every week when we hear Pete preach, it's primarily a conversation. It's not a pontification. It's helping us to see reason for why we should uh, believe the word of Scripture the way it's uh, laid out by him. Uh, so the Reformed Bible teacher and Christian apologist R.C. Sproul has said that 
he's probably only 85% certain in his own theology. And the point he's making is that if he knew which 15% was incorrect, he would have already corrected it, right? So I'm no better than Sproul uh, going forward in this sermon. Uh, And it turns out, if we read verse 2 of James, that uh, we're all in the same boat. Verse 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So what we say often reflects what we believe, and even that might not be 100% correct. But what this verse is telling us is that we all have issues with the words that come out of our mouth. And in fact, it's telling us that if we could really get a handle on our words, then the rest, controlling the rest of our body would be somewhat easier, okay? It's easy for me to be humble about the book of James because there's a diversity of opinion and always has been among theologians, committed Christians, not only about the authorship and the dating, but even the the context in which this book was written. As Pete shared with you last week, uh, the great reformer Martin Luther didn't even believe that James belonged in the canon and had some very nasty things to say about it. But what I want to share with you now is perhaps a little different perspective on the book of James than you've heard before. And I don't even care whether you end up at the same place I do on this, but I think considering it as I'm going to lay it out will be helpful to you as you come to this book. So let me begin by saying I don't believe that James, the the half-brother of Christ, actually wrote these words for us. I do believe, though, that he was the human author of them. Let me explain what I mean. And again, I don't have time for a full argument, but just some considerations. So the first one is that the Greek of the book of James, along with that of the book of Hebrews, is recognized as the best exemplar of classical Greek of the time of any of the New Testament books. So most Greek scholars would say whoever wrote this had Greek as their first language, which wouldn't apply to James. Moreover, if in fact the intended audience is, as the introduction to this book tells us, the Jews scattered abroad, James would have written to them in Aramaic. Um, More importantly, I think, though, is the fact that this book only superficially resembles a New Testament letter or epistle. That is, while it does identify the author and and has a very brief greeting, it's missing a whole lot of other elements that are characteristic of letters of this time and and the other letters found throughout the New Testament. What this book does read like is a sermon from first century times, okay? Now, there were two groups of people that would, would preach, basically. One was Greek philosophers, itinerant Greek philosophers, usually either Stoics or Cynics, who would travel the countryside teaching. The other would be rabbis, Jewish rabbis, who did most of their teaching in the synagogues, okay? And there were several things common to the the teachings and the sermons of these two groups of people in the first century. And the first was that they were essentially exhorting people to better living or to a better way of living, right? The second characteristic was that both groups used allusions to or examples from everyday life 
that would have been easy for their listening, their, their rural audience to understand, okay? And we see that quite a deal in James. So let's look at, uh, and by the way, Jesus did a lot of that, which is one of the things I love most about the, uh, the sermons we have recorded from Jesus. If we look at verse three of James, we see, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So in first century times, there were Roman horses, Roman soldiers on horses all over the place, and this would be an easy example for people to follow. Uh, verse four, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Verses five and six do more of the same. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And obviously, this is one that is probably even more meaningful for us than it was for, for James's original audience. Because every year at this time of year, we watch as thousands upon thousands of acres of forest burn, and we know that it's usually started by a single strike of lightning someplace. Um, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set, a set on fire by hell. A third component of the, the teaching of the Greek philosophers and the, and the sermons of the Jewish rabbis is the use of rhetorical questions. And again, we see that here in the passage in front of us. So skipping to verse 11 of chapter three, it says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Verse 12, can a fig tree, my sisters and brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And obviously, these are rhetorical questions. Of course, a, a grapevine can't produce figs. We all know that. Um, and, and these are in reference to the foregoing passage, which talks about the tongue, which is used both to bless God and to curse other people. We'll look at that in just a minute. There was one significant difference between the, the teachings of the Greek philosophers and the sermons of the Jewish rabbis, and that is that the Jewish rabbis in those times were taught to deliberately disconnect their teaching. That is, they were taught never to linger long on a single subject, but to quickly move on to another one. And this is exactly what we see in the book of James. One of the names for Jewish preaching in that time was Shiraz, which literally means stringing beads, okay? And so again, we see uh, this in the book of James. So I believe that the book of James was a sermon that was delivered to his own home church, all of whom would have been believers, which was translated and written down and broadcast for larger reading by a Greek-speaking congregant, okay? This explains the elements that are missing from a New Testament epistle. It explains the excellent Greek found in the book of James. It even explains the fact that Christ is only mentioned twice in the book of James because the whole congregation not only understood the gospel, but were themselves eyewitnesses or close family members of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. Uh, and it explains why we see here in the book of James practical exhortation rather than theological argument. So as you know, Paul's epistles are full of 
theological and apologetic arguments, I see him as addressing second generation believers and even unbelievers and those that we might call seekers. Whereas James is addressing a, a congregation entirely made, of, made up of those who are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. But I do want you to see that Paul echoes the exhortation of James in many places. After he's laid out a whole lot of theological argument, Paul does usually get around to exhortation. So in a passage in Ephesians 4, 29, 30, we have an echo of this section of James. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So now let's look back at James 3, 8 and 9, where we see pretty much the same thing in the, in the section before us. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. My sisters and brothers, these things ought not to be so. So at this time, uh, <clears throat> you understand what I'm saying. And, and, and again, I don't, I, don't, I don't care if you don't come to the same conclusion that I do, but, but I want you to think about this as a sermon delivered to people who were actually eyewitnesses to the resurrection, people who understood that the very fabric of the world was changed when Christ rose from the dead, people who understood that they were to live entirely differently, that they were part of a revolution that was expected to sweep the whole world because of the difference made by the resurrection of Jesus, okay? Uh, it also explains why I think Adelphoi should be translated brothers and sisters throughout this book. So teaching by a rabbi that took place in the synagogue would have been to men only. Now, we understand that Jesus did a little bit of that, but he also deliberately went out and taught in the countrysides where he could gather crowds that included not just men, but also women and children. And in fact, women were a huge part of Jesus's ministry. And we have recorded numerous incidences in which it was a woman to whom Jesus went out of his way to talk and to reach with the good news that God loved them, right? The teaching in James's home church would have been likewise to men, women, and children. And from the very beginning, the Christian message, the, the revolutionary message of resurrection was very attractive to women, such that we believe that by AD 80, 64% of the church was women. And that because this idea that God loves each one of us equally was so revolutionary and so life-giving to the women living in a time when that was simply not the case in the world in which they live. So from the beginning, the church, the earliest church that James might have been speaking to, would have understood the words that Paul later wrote down in his letter to the Galatians, uh, chapter 3, verse 28, that in Christ, there's neither Greek nor Jew, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Now, if you accept this view that I've just given you, 
understand that it doesn't undermine anything that Pete has shared with us already. It doesn't undermine the traditional claim that Jesus, that James is the author of these words, much less does it undermine uh, the doctrines of the inspiration and authority of Scripture in general or of this particular book of Scripture. So at this point, I'm going to take a quick break, and the keyboardist is going to come up and deliver a spoken word that he uh, wrote just a few months back, which happens to tie in very well with this passage in James. And then I'll come back and give you some concluding remarks. So I give you Jasper Gerhardt. Hello, everyone. This poem is called The Weight of Words. I am not the most articulate guy you've ever heard, and I'm much more comfortable with silence than when uttering spoken word. But please, humor me for a moment and just give this thought a listen. Help me see what we've been missing, because if language is a gift, then why do I feel so enslaved sometimes by words? And while I stutter and I stammer, try to tune out all the chatter. Please don't tell me words don't matter as I'm drowning in a sea of empty noise. And I'm really not a poet, or at least I've never shown it, and you'd probably never notice, but I've always been afraid to speak my mind. However, since I've captured your attention, there's a few things I would mention if you'll lend an ear and listen as to why I think our every word has weight. Now, you may believe that freedom of speech means you can say whatever, whenever, however, to whoever you please, but I'm here to tell you that our words have a power that should make us pause and think. Because words have the power of creation to build or destroy a reputation, unify or separate a nation, purify a toxic situation, be a distraction in disguise or polarize with lies or cause humiliation. And just as God said, let there be, and Jesus Christ said, follow me, in the same way, what if we could change the world with our words. You see, I'm all in favor of freedom of speech, but I'm also in favor of love. Because without love, my words are nothing but a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. I could speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but without a relationship, my words exist in an echo chamber where the only thing I hear serves to gratify my ear and corroborate my fears. I think the problem should be clear. It's not that soliloquy is wrong, but we should strive for dialogue crafting conversation well, practice the art of listening, because the words we use today become the language of tomorrow, and the metaphors we borrow can increase the joy or sorrow of a culture caught in tension. Oh, did I forget to mention that a poet is a prophet, and a prophet is a steward of the minds and hearts of people. It's a thought that makes me tremble. But there's a few things I would urge you if you value words like I do. To begin with, let's be humble, try to step outside our bubble, and at the very least, let's live as though our every word has weight. Thank you. So that was really good. Uh, the, one, the one phrase I want to grab onto because uh, I want to get there is, uh, he said, what if we could change the world with our words? I really think that's what James is driving at here. Um, the power of our words for good and evil and, and for advancing the kingdom of, of heaven on earth. Um, so I'm not really expounding the individual verses in the, in the passage before us today. And that's really intentionally because James is really laying the cookies on the, on the bottom shelf, right? Uh, with these 
characteristics of, of a first century sermon, these examples from everyday life and these rhetorical questions, what James is trying to say is pretty clear to us here. So I want to dwell more on the context in which he was saying it. Let's look real quickly at the remaining verses of chapter 3 that we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, and then I'll come back and try to land this plane. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So I want to just pull a couple of things out of this. I've said that James's original audience recognized the revolutionary nature of of the resurrection, and that they were part of a, of a, a re revolution that was going to change the way people live, change the world. Here, James is reminding them that this is going to be a peaceful resolution, revolution, and that it's going to go forward because of the power of God, the power that is from above. Um, we live in a difficult time. Uh, we live in a time where we experience, we experience the blessings of that revolution and take them for granted in a time in which the revolution itself has largely passed us by, okay? Uh, and, and, and this is the struggle for me this morning is helping you to understand what I mean by that. Uh, everything we consider good about Western culture, Western civilization comes from the descendants of James's first church in Jerusalem. People who knew that the world was forever changed by what Christ has accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection, and people who carried that revolution forward. Uh, and it's difficult for us to understand how different the time, those times were. So we're arguing in our country today about what's the best thing to do about health care so that it's available to every individual. And whether we're fundamentalist Christians or flaming atheists, the reason we're in that conversation is because early Christians understood from the get-go that everybody should have humanitarian aid and health care, Okay. There were, prior to Jesus' time, there were a few Greek physicians, but they weren't for the, they weren't for everybody. They were for the ruling elites. They weren't expected to give care to the orphan or the woman or any other lower member of society. But from the get-go, the Christian church knew that part of the revolution was that every individual was loved by God and therefore should be loved by Christ's followers, okay? So the fact that we can debate healthcare is only possible because the church's revolution carried forward and we're living downstream of that, okay? Does that make sense? <laughs> uh, being a woman in Roman times was a very nasty thing, okay? Uh, 
the reason the, the gospel message of the new kingdom was so attractive to women that they, they filled the church pews was because being a woman was being a, a completely second-class citizen otherwise. The news that God loved me to a woman of first century times was earth-shattering, revolutionary. The fact that today we can point to instances of gender equality, regardless of what side of the theological or political spectrum we live on, is only true because we already have an understanding of the need for gender equality that was given to us by the church, okay? Slavery was abolished in Roman times by Christians. Slavery was abolished, the transatlantic slavery was outlawed because of the work of Christians. It wasn't Enlightenment thinkers. In fact, a who's who of Enlightenment thinkers, Thomas Hume, Thomas Hobbes, uh, you know, Voltaire, name all the Enlightenment thinkers you want. They were either slave owners or supportive of slavery. It was Christianity that saw to the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, okay? The revolution has largely passed us by. That's because, that's not because the revolution is still ongoing. It's estimated that there are 70,000 new converts to Christianity in the world every day. But that's not happening here in America or in Central Oregon. And that's partly because we've allowed our being Americans or being Central Oregonians to take precedence over our being revolutionary ambassadors of Christ's kingdom come on earth. And so while you may read the words of James 3 as a self-help text, certainly guarding your tongue and being gracious in the words you say will in fact likely improve your family situation or your workplace situation or whatever else. But this is much more than that. James is addressing a congregation who understood the revolutionary nature of the resurrection and saying, here are your marching orders. From now on, when you use your tongue to speak words, they're not to be used to give you a a shorter place in the line or to protect your political preferences or to uh, see to it that you get a promotion and the other guy doesn't. Your words are to be those that would put forth the kingdom, that would help everybody with whom you interact either understand that they are loved by God and encourage them to help others to see that. Listen, everybody we meet is either a fellow believer who needs encouragement in in reconciling all things to the kingdom of God or someone whom God loves who doesn't yet understand God's love for them. And so if all of our words were with those end goals in mind, and none of our words were selfish or self-serving or, or to protect our rights or positions, we'd get back in the revolution. Does that make sense? So read, read this passage as self-help because it will help your family situation and your workplace situation. But understand that the revolution is ongoing and that if we could, as a body, 
as, as, a, as a congregation of ambassadors of, of the kingdom of heaven right here in Central Oregon, if we could individually and corporately always use our words only for building up and for good and for telling people how much God loves them, the people of Central Oregon would take notice. And as Jasper said in his spoken word piece, we could change the world with our words. As we come to the table to uh, meet again with the Lord and Savior who, who sparked the revolution and wants to meet us again today, let us do so with, uh, with the conviction that we really have some work to do in the way we use our words and, and specifically in, in the understanding that there's a much greater purpose than the things that usually uh, attract our interest when we speak to other people. Let's pray. Lord God, we just uh, thank you for the book of James and for the exhortation it is. We pray that we would understand that you are still at work in the world, reconciling all things to yourself. Uh, we grieve that at times we uh, put petty interests of our own before your kingdom. And we pray that uh, you would help us by your Holy Spirit in the days to come, in the years to come, to understand that our words have a very, a very important purpose in your kingdom, and that is advancing it, helping people to know how much they are loved by you, that you died for them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.